and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Start off with a question today. Have you ever associated God's love with being demanding? Do you think God's love is demanding? Huh. Uh, New York City pastor and author Tim Keller uh, has had many fascinating conversations with people seeking God. Um, You get all kinds, I guess, in New York City. And uh, anyway, one woman had to, um, had to learn how the grace extended to us through Jesus, uh, how that, uh, his work on the cross, how that can actually be more challenging than just mere religion. Uh, she had always heard that God accepts us only if we are good enough. And uh, She said this new message about being accepted by God because of what Jesus did for her, that was a little scary and challenging for her. And so Tim Keller asked her, well, why is this scary to you? And and this is is how she responded to him. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd be like a taxpayer with certain rights. Hmm. I could claim I'd done my duty and now I deserved a certain quality of life. And then she added this comment. But if I am a sinner saved by grace alone, it's very different. Then there's nothing God cannot ask of me. Huh. Then there's nothing that God cannot ask of me. You know, that woman was exactly right. Grace has an edge to it. Um, God's love makes demands on you and me. And she knew that if she was a sinner saved by God's grace alone, she was even more indebted to the Lordship of Jesus. If Jesus had really done everything that the Bible said that he had done for her, then she no longer belonged to herself. And she joyfully and gratefully now belonged to Jesus who had provided all of this at infinite cost to himself. Cruciform, being being cross-shaped. That's the, that's the overarching kind of mega theme that we've assigned to our study of 2 Corinthians this fall. And over and over again, the great Christian leader, Paul, demonstrated to those Christians in Corinth what it meant to have a life that was shaped and molded by the cross of Jesus spiritually. And 20 centuries later, we can still learn through Paul's example what it means for us to be cruciform, to have a cross-shaped life, a life that, that resembles and reflects Jesus. So I want to ask that question again. Have you ever associated God's love with being demanding of you? Probably not. 
because we tend to think of love in terms of acceptance, affirmation. We're apt to say, well, you know, he accepts me the way I am, therefore he loves me. Or she affirms who I am, therefore she loves me. And, you know, defining love in those terms is not all wrong, but neither is it all right either. And I want you to think with me about God's love today, how we experience it and also how we extend it. And yes, God's love for us accepts our innate value. It affirms our priceless worth. Folks, you cannot find a deeper dignity or provide a higher appraisal of human beings than the one God gives us in his word. We're made in his image. We're so valuable that Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. But his love, God's love for you and me, goes beyond just acceptance and affirmation of us. And, and I think that's revealed in our scripture today, which I'm going to ask you to turn to now. We're, we're in the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, and um, you can find it in the Blue Pew Bible on the pages that are indicated there. You can find it on your device or in your own Bible. And we're only going to look at four verses today. But they're tremendous verses, and they're found in the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, verses 11 through 15. I guess that's five verses. I'm sorry. Five verses. Anyway, uh, just those five verses, and um, I just would encourage you to follow along now as I read those out loud to you. For, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verses 14 and 15 are the ones that we really want to zero in on today. These are, these are verses that kind of, they're kind of the gospel in a nutshell. Verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So what do we find here? First, Jesus' love makes demands on you and me. In the New Living Translation, it says, Christ's love controls me. And the Greek word that Paul used there is a very interesting one. Uh, and the English translations differ in their efforts to convey its meaning. The one that I read earlier was from the New International, which says, for Christ's love compels me. And then another translation puts it this way, we are ruled by Christ's love for us. And it's a strong word that Paul is using there. It, it, means to, it means to hem in, 
to hold on to, to grip something on both sides, to take away options, to give no way out, to, to, to back into a corner. Uh, Jesus actually used the word once in relation to himself. He said, I have a terrible baptism um, of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. And he was referring there to the cross and, and all that he would suffer on our behalf. And this was the mission that his father had given to him. And, and I want to suggest to you that that mission controlled Jesus, compelled Jesus, to some extent ruled Jesus. It was the driving force of his life. It motivated him every moment of every day. On the one hand, as a human being, Jesus had no desire to suffer and to die. But on the other hand, he longed to fulfill his father's will and mission because it was his destiny. It was, a, it was a burden to him. And, and here Paul said that Jesus' love for us controls or compels us. It rules us. It, it makes powerful demands on you and me. And, you know, Paul knew this from personal experience. Uh, once he realized the magnitude of God's grace that was channeled to him personally and specifically in and through Jesus, he had no choice about how he was going to live the rest of his life. The love of Jesus was so impactful that it actually controlled in a positive way how Paul went about his life and ministry from the very first day of his conversion. And it's the same for you and me. We're hemmed in by Jesus' love for us. You know, sometimes we think that, that Jesus' love just opens up all these options to us in life. And, and Paul would have none of that idea. He said Jesus' love actually takes away our options. It backs us into a corner, so to speak. It grips and holds us firmly on both sides. It gives us no way out. The Holy Spirit now lives within us. It gives us no rest, no relief from the demands of Jesus' life upon our lives. And Jesus' love for us is to become, supposed to become the driving force of our lives. It's supposed to motivate us every moment of every day. And when we get motivated by the love of Jesus, we become free then to new, a, live a new life with new goals, new purpose. And folks, that's also when we start bringing glory to God and God uses us to bless the world around us. And God's love for us then is, is, something, is something beyond just merely accepting us and affirming us. When we open up our lives to the love of Jesus, it becomes something demanding, controlling, compelling in a positive way. Now, the Bible also says, and it says it right here, that Jesus' love demands that I die to my old self. That's, that's where Paul goes first. Notice, notice his train of thought here. Christ's love controls us. We talked about that. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. Huh. So what's Paul talking about? Well, he's not talking about physical death, is he? No. Uh, but the death of my old sinful nature and everything that's part of life without God. 
okay? And Jesus' death must change the way that we live here and now on earth, not simply just, you know, kind of being a ticket to heaven. Dying to your old self or your old life. I mean, what, what does that mean? How, how can I die to my old self? Well, I think Paul gives us some hints in this passage. First of all, I die to ignoring and disrespecting God. Paul wrote here, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And when we fear the Lord, it doesn't mean that we're in terror of him. It just means that we take him seriously every moment of every day. And the Old Testament put it like this. What does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God. And then it's sort of defined here. And live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. You know, perhaps people don't mean to, but the fact is this, that most people today ignore God. And when you ignore God, you disrespect God. You, you, you don't have an appropriate fear of him. And when you choose to live your life according to your own standards rather than his standards, you disrespect God. Or another way you do it is when you, can, when you turn God into some sort of indulgent, permissive Santa Claus kind of caricature who winks, you know, at our ungodly actions and attitudes and could care less, really, if we live for him. When we treat God like that or we think of God like that, we disrespect him. And Jesus' love for you and me demands that we die to every possible way that you can ignore or disrespect God. Dying to my old self also demands that I die to the myth that I can make myself acceptable to God. Look at what Paul says. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old sinful life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Now, folks, again, most people believe in God. If you ask your neighbors or most of your friends, they're going to say that they believe that there's a God. But, but they also believe the persistent myth that somehow they can make themselves morally acceptable to an absolutely holy God who demands perfection from anybody that wants to have a relationship with him. And though, again, most people will readily admit that they're not perfect, Nevertheless, they're still hopeful that, you know, God will overlook that, be impressed with their sincerity and the fact that, that they're probably morally better than a lot of other people. And, and most people also, you know what, they admire and they respect Jesus, but here's where they draw the line. They balk at the idea that Jesus' death was necessary to make them acceptable to God. They don't like that idea. And they refuse to believe that Jesus' death was necessary to make them acceptable to God. They refuse to believe that Jesus died for us or that God asked him to do that. They aren't willing to give Jesus that kind of significance, that kind of exclusivity. And, and here's the thing, folks. Jesus' love for you demands 
that we die to thinking that we can ever earn, ever deserve a relationship with God based on our own efforts and our own merits. You can't do it. Now, Paul touched on the fact that dying to your old self means that we die to wrong evaluations of other human beings. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. And his point, he made it even clearer in the verse that comes next after the ones that we read, verse 16. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. You see, if you remember in our study of 2 Corinthians, we know that a group of false teachers had arrived at the church in Corinth who were trying to undermine Paul's influence. They questioned his leadership role. They, they said that he wasn't charismatic enough, they, that he lacked gravitas as a leader, that he lacked spiritual gifts that leaders should have, and they thought that all of his sufferings and trials were proof, really, that he did not have God's blessing. I mean, if you got God's blessing, everything works out for you. That's what they thought. And so they were evaluating Paul from a merely human point of view. You know, folks, I, I can't, I can't, I don't know about you, but I can't recall a time in my own life where there is such open disrespect for fellow human beings than right now. Can you? I can't. But you know, that's what our culture and even some of our culture's leaders say that we should act. Uh, and our old sinful nature refuses to place equal value on human beings. It believes that some people matter and others don't. It, it says that only some people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and kindness and justice. And sadly, sometimes those attitudes seem to come from people who say that they follow Jesus. And if, if, if people's beliefs or lifestyles are different than ours or even sinful and they will be. It's easy to begin to believe that they don't matter to God, that they aren't worthy of being treated with dignity and respect and justice. And Christian, I think we have to ask that question of ourselves. Do we evaluate other people from just a merely human point of view? Because it's very easy to do that. But God's word says that Jesus' love for us takes away that option. Jesus' love leads us to an uncomfortable conclusion. I am no longer free to look at other people from a worldly point of view because Jesus' love for me demands that I die to the way that this world evaluates and judges other human beings. Well, that leads to, to something that Scripture teaches here and everywhere when it comes to my old self. I die to refusing spiritual change and growth. i got to die to that. You see, we, we all resist change, don't we? Especially spiritual change. And God is all about changing your heart and my heart and giving us a completely new perspective on living. But the fact is that, that we all want to cling to that old stuff to some degree. It might be pride or resentment or rage or lust or selfishness or, or loving money and things. 
and, and we can deny it. We say, I don't have a problem in that area. Or we ignore it. We say, I, I, I'm not that bad. There are many other people worse than me. Or, or we justify it. We say, that's just the way that I am. If, if you know what had happened in my life, you, you'd understand that that's the way I'm put together. And most of us are quick to excuse and tolerate the ongoing presence of that, that old sinful self inside of us. We all do it. And Jesus' love for you and for me demands that we die to that stubborn refusal to change and to grow spiritually. And then when it comes to my old self, here's something else that we should remember. Jesus' love for me demands that I die to the centrality of me. The centrality of me. Oh, boy, that, that's the hard one right there, isn't it? Yes. Ever since Adam, ordinary human beings, we, we live for ourselves. We live for our own benefit. Look, look what Paul wrote here, folks. Don't miss it. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Huh. Have you ever watched the National Football League Pro Bowl before? Uh, it, it's a game that's held at the end of every football season, usually I think in the month of February. And, and what happens is the best players from the league are chosen and they play for their respective conferences. There's the National Football Conference, there's the American Football Conference, and each conference wears uh, the same color jerseys. So, for example, one team, like in our picture, wears uh, red and the other one wears blue uh, and so that's, that's kind of what they do. But what's interesting is that they all wear different helmets in that game. Um, each player wears the helmet of the team that he really plays for. You know, I mean, those are the folks that pay him the big contract, right? Um, and a lot of people think that the Pro Bowl ought to be abolished because it's just not a real game. I mean... The players don't really hit each other very hard. They don't, they don't run with a lot of effort. They play very carefully because they, they don't want to get injured. They don't want to put their lucrative uh, contract in jeopardy. And if you think about it, sometimes we Christians can resemble those NFL players at the Pro Bowl. How so? We wear jerseys that say, Jesus! but we're wearing a helmet that says self. And that's, that's the real team that we're playing for, the self team. That's the real side that we're on. And that reality can affect every part of our lives. Folks, when, when, you, when you live for yourself, you are central. And a self-dominated life is one where your primary goal every day is to please yourself. Campus Crusade for Christ, or CREW as it's called now, popularized a graphic um, years ago that shows these two circles that represent two kinds of lives. Probably many of you have seen that. Some of you may have even used it as you've shared Jesus with other people. But anyway, a, a, life, a life without Jesus as has self at the center that's represented by that big S letter up there. 
And the throne in the circle represents who's in charge of that life. And all the little dots are just the, the, the everyday stuff of life. And, and if this depicts your life, your old self is sitting on the throne or is at the center of your life. You're in charge. And it's essentially a self-centered, self-serving life. It's a life that's organized completely around self. And Jesus, represented by the cross, is on the outside of your life. And here's the thing, folks. Here's the irony. You can be a very nice person and be self-centered. You can be a very moral and upright person and still be self-centered. What you can never be is who God wants you to be. If that depicts your life, that's not the life that God wants you to have. Jesus' love for you demands that you and I die to our own centrality. Now, dying to anything, it isn't easy. It's not enjoyable, is it? So I'm glad for what else our scripture says today. Because Jesus' love also demands that I live a new kind of life. It demands that I live a new kind of life. Oh, I'm very glad for verse 15 in our passage uh, where uh, uh, Paul said, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Folks, if I expect to be resurrected after I die and then live eternally, I, I need to respond properly to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we've reflected on, on what or how you die to your old self. But, but here's an even more important question to answer. So how can I live into this new life? I mean, how do I define that? What, what does that look like? And here's really kind of the five alternatives to the five that we talked about earlier under death to self. First of all, Jesus' love demands that I glorify God in all things. And this is the exact opposite of ignoring or disrespecting God, which is just an evidence of your old life. This, this is the New Testament version of fearing the Lord. And, and just a few verses before in this chapter uh, in, uh, that, that we're looking at, Paul had said, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done in this earthly body. And so Paul knew that God was going to hold him accountable. Again, this was not about salvation. This was about an evaluation of what God had done, uh, how Paul had used uh, whatever uh, God had given to him. And, and so Paul's focus was glorifying God in everything that he did, everything he said, every decision he made, every relationship he entered into. You know, a year ago, we were, we were making a journey through 1 Corinthians, and the key verse in that book was this one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? Tell me. The glory of God. That kind of sums it up. And there's also a verse that we considered last week, which is just kind of a restatement. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to what? Please him. Yeah. So Jesus' love leaves me no choice. It controls, it compels me to glorify God in all things. And then Jesus' love 
demands that I trust in who and what Jesus did for me. Folks, again, if I can make myself acceptable for God, uh, before God, then Jesus essentially died for nothing. The cross makes no sense. But the fact is that Jesus is both unique and he's significant. Because through Jesus, God became a human being. He died on the cross in our place as our substitute. And through his resurrection, both the penalty for my sin, which is death, and the power of it has been broken in my life. In another letter, here's what God said through Paul. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are, God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And so Jesus' love leaves me no cho choice but to trust in who he is and what he did for me. It controls me, it compels me, it rules me in that way. Jesus' love demands that I treat everyone as objects of God's gracious love. Oh, this is a hard one. It is. I mentioned earlier that we live in this polarizing, divisive period of time. And folks, I, I got to be honest with you. Maybe you struggle with this too. Some days, some days, I really struggle with treating everyone as a creature made in God's image and someone for whom Jesus died and rose again. And I'll just, I'll just open up my heart to tell you the struggles I have. I, I look at people who identify as LGBTQ, and folks, I, there's a big part of me that just wants to dismiss them because of their unbiblical lifestyle choices, okay? But they're made in God's image. There are people for whom Jesus died and rose again. I... I hear transgender people talking about their issues, and, and I want to dismiss them as being mentally ill. I do. Made in God's image, and people for whom Jesus died and rose again. I, I hear the arguments and the rationale of people who support social and political issues and political uh, leaders that frankly make me both angry and nauseous. And some of them are fellow Christians, made in God's image. People for whom Jesus died and rose again. I run into people whose approach to the pandemic leaves me incredulous. I want to lash out at them. Made in God's image. People for whom Jesus died and rose again. Jesus' love forced Paul toward a striking conclusion. He was no longer free to treat people from a merely human, earthly perspective. If Jesus' love was made available to all people so that Jesus died for everyone, then it's perfectly obvious that Jesus loved everyone enough to die for them. Therefore, I no longer have the freedom to look at anyone differently than the way Jesus looks at them. 
I must look at those whom Jesus loves through an entirely new set of glasses. I no longer have the freedom to treat people the way that I did before. I must look at people through the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus' love leaves me no choice but to treat everyone as objects of God's gracious love. Don't have a choice. God's love controls me, compels me, demands something of me. Jesus' love also demands I pursue spiritual change and growth. Not run from it, not avoid it, instead pursue it. Chase after it, surrender to it. You know, in, in, in the name of being loving and tolerant and forgiving, sometimes we can ask Jesus to overlook and excuse attitudes and actions that he died to free us from. All, the, all that rotten stuff that, of our old self, our sinful nature, all that junk that, that we want to indulge. And, 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 and Paul would just have none of that. No, if Jesus died for all, then when you become his follower... You die too. You no longer have the freedom to indulge attitudes and actions that it was necessary for Jesus to die for. When you put your faith in Jesus, it's in order that you might pursue a new and a changed life. In Jesus, the new has come, the old is gone. And God sent his son to die on the cross so that you and I could be transformed, not accommodated. And we're called to walk away from that old life and live into this new life that he's made possible for us. I don't have any freedom to live like I used to live. Instead, I've been given the freedom now to live, to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. And Jesus' love leaves me no choice but to pursue spiritual transformation whenever it's presented to me. I like a story of a family that was staying at a hotel in Nigeria. And the man heard a knock on the door. He opened it and he found this young, smiling Nigerian gentleman ready to clean their room. And he was so embarrassed because their, look, their room looked like something like that. Be honest now, have you ever been to a hotel and that's the way you left it? <laughs> okay. Suitcases and clothes and stuff were sprawled all over these unmade beds, wet towels were all over the bathroom floor, and the man in the room apologized profusely. But the young man replied graciously, he said, no problem, sir. For this reason I have come, to put your things in order. For this reason I have come, to put your things in order. And you know what the Bible says, this is exactly what Jesus came to do for you and for me, yes? To put our lives in order. To bring change and transformation that we sorely need. And he doesn't demand that we straighten up our own mess. Instead, he offers to clean up for us. That's why I've come, to put your things in order. And we dare not refuse his gracious offer Instead, we invite him in to do his job in us. Finally, let me say, make this final point. Jesus' love demands that I make and that I keep Jesus central. Yeah. Why did Jesus die? 
Folks, it wasn't just to reveal his power. It wasn't just to demonstrate his love. Yes, it did that. But it wasn't just to give an example of selflessness. I can't think of a more straightforward explanation than the scripture that we're looking at today provides. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. And yes, by nature, you and I are hopelessly self-centered. But when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, our focus, our orientation starts to change from self to Jesus. And we make him and we make his mission central and the very most important thing in our lives. We We move from being egocentric to being Christocentric. You know, earlier I mentioned that crew graphic that showed those two circles that represent two kinds of life. Here again is the one that talks about the self-directed or the self-centered life. But here, there's another one. Here's the one showing a Christ-directed or a Christ-centered life. And you can see on that graph that Jesus sits on the throne of that kind of life. And self is submitted and surrendered to Jesus. And all the different issues of life are now in their proper place. And, you know, the great question of life and maybe at different points in life is which, which circle represents your life and my life today? Are, are you self-centered or are you Christ-centered? And it's only too obvious which graphic represents what it means to be cruciform, to have a cross-shaped life. How many of you out there have had teenage kids? A lot of you. Okay. Do you remember that day when you gave your teenager the keys to your car for the very first time. And some of you younger people out there that got younger kids, your day's coming. (laughs) It's coming. Because I want to tell you right now, when you hand those keys over to your teenager, uh, it's an anxious moment. You know why? Because you're not in control anymore. Because when... You're sitting in the driver's seat, and your teenager is either in the back seat or they're in the seat next to you. You're still in control. You get to decide the destination. You get to decide what route you're going to take. You decide how fast you're going to drive. You're in control. But when you hand those keys over to your teenager, you're giving up control. You're saying, that I, I, I trust you. God help us. I trust you to get us from point A to point B safely. Okay? Um, I think some, there's an analogy there about our life with Jesus. Because um, I think sometimes what we do is we want Jesus in the car. We just don't want him driving. <laughs> okay? We, we, we want Jesus in our life. We just don't want him in control of our lives. And that's the tension that I think many times we live with. 
Because, I mean, it's helpful to have Jesus in your life, right? I mean, he can be very useful. Jesus, I've got health problems. Help. Jesus, I need, I need uh, help with some big decisions in life. Jesus, I've got money problems. Help. Jesus, I've got relationship issues. Help. Jesus, I, I, I want you to be in the drive-along seat in my life, but I'm not sure that I want you to be driving the car. And I think that's a tension that, even as believers, that we struggle with throughout our entire relationship with the Lord. Because, you see, when Jesus is in the driver's seat of your life and mine, he's in control. And so now, you know, it's not your wallet anymore. It's his wallet. And so when it comes to giving, it's no longer a matter of whether you think you ought to be generous, whether you think there's enough money coming in, because it's not your wallet anymore. It's his wallet. It's not your mouth anymore. You don't have, to, you don't have some God-given right to deceive or to exaggerate or to tell people off. It's his mouth. It belongs to him. And so every part of our lives is, is given to him. And all the things that we, that, that we thought we had a right to do and to be, all, all of that, just, it just now belongs to Jesus because he's in control. He's in the driver's seat. There's, there's a Bible verse that I think sums it up very well. It's Galatians 2.20. Here it goes. My old self has been crucified with Christ. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you cruciform? Do you, do you have a, a life that is being shaped by the cross of Jesus? My friend, if you do and I do, we're experiencing God's love, which ironically demands something of you and me, compels us, controls us. To do what? To glorify God in all things to put our trust in who Jesus is and what he did for us in terms of being acceptable to God. Treating every person with God's gracious love. Pursuing spiritual change, spiritual transformation, and making and keeping Jesus at the center of our lives. That's what it means to have a cross shaped life let's pray father god we thank you today for your word just a few verses today lord but man they just they just get to the heart of so much in our relationship with you and father uh this this whole business of dying to self and living into the new life that you've given to us yes it happens it begins when we first put our faith and trust in you. But then it's, it's really, it's a choice that we make every day from then on.
uh, whether we're going to live into that old life or whether we're going to live into that, that new life that we've been given in Jesus. Lord, sometimes we get stuck, and we can go weeks, months, even years just, just living a self-centered life. But because you are faithful to us, Lord, you, you, you draw us back, and you help us to understand that your love makes demands on us. It controls us. It compels us. It, it says this is what you need to do and to be. And so, Lord, we yield to that today. And we ask that you would help us to, to love you in return and to be the kind of people that you have called us to be because your love just doesn't give us any other choice. We thank you, we praise you today for what you have done for us and how your love controls us, compels us, demands from us that we live a cruciform life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.